Many great movements of the Spirit are recorded in the annals of the Church. Some have started great works, while others have changed the course of history. Few, however, have had the impact of one sermon delivered by a fisherman newly empowered by the Spirit of God. Welcome to the Bible Study Hour, a radio and internet broadcast with Dr. James Boyce, preparing you to think and act biblically. The lasting result of the filling of the Holy Spirit that day in Jerusalem was not merely the performance of great miracles or of speaking in tongues. It was the emboldening of witnesses like Peter to proclaim the life-changing power of the Lord Jesus Christ. Join Dr. Boyce now as he examines a sermon that would lead 3,000 souls to ask that most important of questions, Brothers, what shall we do to be saved? Our sermon is on the second chapter of the book of Acts, beginning with verse 14 through verse 41, where we have a record of what the Apostle Peter preached at Pentecost. It's that sermon, the sermon preached at Pentecost, and not the one that I'm about to bring to you that won 3,000 souls. I wish it were otherwise. I wish I could say that I had preached on this or some other occasion, and the Lord blessed it in such a way that thousands of people responded to the preaching of the gospel and came to faith in Christ. But not only have I not had that experience, I doubt very much if anyone else has had it either. From time to time, I, I read accounts of revivals in which the Spirit of God works in a strong way, and many people are moved as the Word of God is preached, and many hundreds respond in faith. And yet, in all those accounts, I've not read of any occasion when a sermon was so blessed by the Holy Spirit that 3,000 people who before that were lost in sin and blinded in their ignorance far from God and far from faith in Jesus Christ turned from sin, responded to Him, and entered the company of God's people within the church. And yet that's what happened at Pentecost as God blessed this first sermon of the Christian era, the sermon preached by Peter as he stood up on Pentecost to explain what God was doing and inaugurate the church age. Now, it's what we should expect, of course. Perhaps we wouldn't expect this powerful a result, but certainly we would expect some result and a striking one. We saw as we began our study of the book of Acts that Jesus had told them that they were going to receive power, these apostles of his, and that after they received power, the power of the Holy Spirit, they were going to be his witnesses. And they were going to start as his witnesses in Jerusalem, and then they were going to go out from there into all the known world. This is what Peter does. This is the beginning at Jerusalem as the Holy Spirit comes. And then we saw when we we're looking last week at the first verses of the second chapter that the entire emphasis upon this filling of the apostles with the Holy Spirit was upon their speaking. I pointed out that sometimes we get off base on that. And people look at this miracle that happened at the same time in which those who heard, each heard in their own tongue, that is, as the apostles went pouring out of the upper room into the streets and began to talk to people that they met there in the streets of Jerusalem. That certainly was a great miracle and an exciting one, and one that uh, the apostle Peter used in a powerful way as an introduction to the sermon he was about to preach about Jesus. But it's not the essence 
of Pentecost. It was a miracle, it was a sign, it was important, but the important thing, the most important thing, is that those who were filled by the Holy Spirit began to be Christ's witnesses. The same thing that Jesus had told them in this version of the Great Commission they would be. You find that, as I pointed out last week, every time in Acts that you come to a reference to the filling with the Holy Spirit. Whenever the Holy Spirit fills the people of God, they demonstrate that filling, not by doing miracles, but by testifying to Jesus Christ. And that's what God blesses. Well, here, as I say, we have Peter doing that. First of all, this is a great biblical sermon, is it not? The Apostle Peter didn't have the New Testament when he stood up to preach on this occasion, but he had a great biblical book. He had the Old Testament. Not only did he have it, he knew it. I would suggest, I suggested it when we were studying the end of chapter 1, that he'd even spent these previous days studying it, probably together with the other apostles and the early Christians who were gathered with them and were there on Pentecost. The Lord had started them on this track. He had begun to explain the nature of his ministry and his work by referring to these Old Testament texts, saying that they were foolish and slow of heart to believe if they didn't see that the things that had happened in his ministry had been fulfillments of what God had prophesied so many years before. We know that on the occasion when he accompanied the Emmaus disciples on their way back to their hometown, he began with Moses and, and the prophets and expounded to them in all the writings, that is, all three sections of the Old Testament, the things that concerned himself. So Jesus had begun to teach them how to do this. And Peter, undoubtedly, during these days of waiting for Pentecost, had searched the scriptures himself. And now suddenly Pentecost came, and the apostle Peter, who was never a person to be shy, seized the opportunity, leader as he was, often a foolish one, but not on this occasion. He seized the opportunity, and he, he stood up, and he began to preach, and he drew from this great store of Old Testament texts that which was to be the substance of his sermon. It's interesting when we turn to Peter's sermon that he has not so much a, a case of having great points, numerous points, as he has numerous texts. He doesn't just take one text and expound it. He has three great texts, and he expounds each of them, weaving them together in a really biblical whole. Now, you know what they are. The first text is from the second chapter of Joel. It's the verses that end that chapter, the second of the three chapters of that minor prophet, verses 28 through 32 in our version of the Bible. Joel is, uh, is a rather gloomy prophecy. It was written on the occasion of a great disaster that had come upon Israel. There had been a locust plague, and it was devastating, and it wiped out everything, every green thing in the whole land. And in an economy, a rural agricultural economy as that was, it was a very serious thing. It, it was a question of life and death for most people. And Joel begins to talk about that, and instead of saying, as some of us might say under those circumstances, well, every cloud has a silver lining, it's going to get better, don't worry. Uh, Joel says, no, as a matter of fact, it's going to get worse. That's only a symbol of the final judgment to come. So it's in a book like that that this prophecy occurs, a very serious, gloomy book. And yet in the middle of it, Joel begins to talk about a blessing that is to come to the people in the latter days. He says God is going to restore the years that the locusts have eaten. There's going to be a, a time when God blesses you that you'll be satisfied. 
And it's at the end of that turn in the prophecy as he begins to speak comforting words that these great verses occur. He says, in the latter days, that is beyond the time of national physical blessing, I'm going to pour out my spirit upon all flesh. And he gives the words that the apostle Peter picks up on this occasion. Peter referred to that text because it was the prophecy of Pentecost. And he said with that kind of graphic urgency, that ability to take the present moment and to link it to the Old Testament prophecy that we see exhibited by Jesus Christ and by other biblical preachers, with that great ability to take those two, he welds them together and he says of that experience of the pouring out of the Holy Spirit and the speaking in tongues and the blessing that was to come on this day, this is the thing about which Joel has spoken. And so he uses that great text. A little later on in his sermon, he quotes from Psalm 16, verses 8 through 11. The verses written by David, the great king of Israel. They were very important to the early Christian preachers, the apostle Paul also. They were significant because, although this is quite obviously a sermon written about David, and it contains statements that can apply quite literally to David, toward the end of the psalm, it has this interesting passage in which David says, you will not abandon me to the grave, you will not let your holy one see decay. David, at this point, must have been a prophet looking forward to the Messiah, who, because he, unlike David, was the Holy One, would not see decay. He would die, but his body wouldn't decay in the grave. And so he would be raised again incorruptible. Peter refers to that and says that is also a prophecy of what has happened in our time in the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth, whom you all knew and know. And then finally, uh, Peter quotes from the 110th Psalm, verse 1. This is the verse of the Old Testament that is most quoted in the New. It's quoted about 25 or 30 times, sometimes very directly, like this, word for word, and other times indirectly. The book of Hebrews, for example, refers to this verse at least three times and perhaps a few other times indirectly. Here is a verse in which, again, David is writing and says, the Lord, that is God, Jehovah, said to my Lord, in the Hebrew, the word is Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus referred to this himself in an incident recorded in Matthew 22, saying, how could David refer to a descendant of his as his Lord? How could he say that God called his Lord, Lord? Well, if he were merely a descendant of David, uh, a mere human being, that would be impossible. But the Messiah was not to be a mere human being. He was to be more than that. He was to be the God-man, the one whom God would exalt above every person and being in heaven and in earth and give him a name that's above every name, allowing him to sit at his right hand until he makes all his enemies a footstool for his feet. This text Peter picks up in this sermon and applies quite rightly to Jesus. Now, it's interesting to think about this sermon, particularly in its structure and its emphasis. Where is the emphasis of this sermon? Well, one thing we can do in a, in a kind of objective way is to just count up the number of verses that are given to quotations of the Old Testament and put them over against the number of verses that are here as exposition. You do that, it's a little hard to know 
how to apply some verses. For example, verse 16 is not a quotation of the Old Testament, but it's an introduction of the quotation that comes from the Old Testament. If you put the introductions along with the quotations that they introduce, then you have 13 verses given over to Old Testament citation. And over against that, you have 11 verses of exposition plus two verses of application, the conclusion that comes at the very end. So at the most, you have 13 verses versus 13 verses. You see, it's just about evenly balanced, and perhaps the emphasis even falls upon the Old Testament citation. The basis of the sermon, and the most important thing, is the Word of God. You say, well, why is that important? It's important for this reason. It is the Word of God that God blesses. It's not that he blesses the word of the preacher. Oh, he may use the words of the preacher or the word of the witness as a vehicle. God hasn't promised to bless that. What God has promised to do is bless his word. He said, my word that goes out of my mouth will accomplish that which I please, and it will prosper in the thing whereunto I send it. Sometimes you and I speak and God prospers it, and we rejoice in that. But God doesn't promise to do that. God has promised to bless his word, and so his word, the actual words of Scripture, have to be the basis of our exposition. Now, secondly, I want you to see that this sermon is Christ-centered. That follows from the first point, does it not? If the sermon is biblical, and if the Bible is about Jesus Christ, if he's its heart and substance, then A biblical sermon is inevitably going to be a Christ-centered one. It's interesting to notice what Peter had to say about Jesus. You see, he begins his sermon officially in verse 22, after having given his text about Pentecost. Men of Israel, listen to this. Jesus of Nazareth, a man accredited by God to you by miracles, wonders, and signs which God did among you through him as you yourselves know. This man was handed over to you. He goes on to talk at that point about the crucifixion and the resurrection and the ascension into heaven and his exaltation at the right hand of God. I asked the question, what is missing in that that you might have expected Peter, the one who accompanied the Lord Jesus Christ through the three years of his active earthly ministry, to have said? Well, what you would have expected, perhaps, that Peter might have said is Jesus' teaching. He might have said the Lord Jesus Christ said this, and the Lord Jesus Christ said that, and the Lord Jesus Christ taught this other thing. It's interesting, isn't it, that Peter doesn't do that. Now, don't misunderstand me at that point. I'm not saying at all that the teachings of Jesus Christ are unimportant. Certainly they are. That's why we have the Gospels. They're recorded for us. But here, Peter is preaching to men and women who are not followers of Jesus Christ, who are not believers in Jesus Christ. Men and women who, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, are dead in their sins. You can't preach to people like that and say, this is what Jesus says you should do, because they can't do it. Not only can't they do it, they don't even want to do it. People that were unregenerate crucified Jesus because of the things he was teaching. And so Peter preaches to those who are dead in sins. And he said, look, Jesus came to save you from your sins. And so he preaches what Jesus did before he preaches what Jesus said. You see, we need that in the churches today. Many churches are filled with well-meaning people who preach what Jesus says and somehow expect those who were not born again 
to follow them, and they can't do it. They don't even want to. And what we have to do, first of all, is preach that God sent Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. And he did die for our sins, and he rose again from the dead, and God vindicated him by the resurrection, and those who trust him now find salvation from their sins and new life by the Holy Spirit. It's interesting to list the doctrines that Peter manages to squeeze in concerning Christ's work in just this one sermon. His ministry, which is not so much a ministry by words as a ministry by signs, God vindicating who he is. The crucifixion, in which he stresses not merely man's role, you by wicked hands have slain him, but God's role, God delivered him up, God's purpose. The resurrection, which he deals with at greatest length, going into the text, from Psalm 16 and then expounding upon it in verses 29 and following, Christ's ascension and exaltation at the right hand of God in verse 33, and finally his present ministry as a part of which he has poured out the Holy Spirit at Pentecost and continues to do that, blessing the church composed of those who follow him. When I began to think about this, I I can't help but think of the sad state of so much Christian preaching and witnessing today. The problem with our preaching today is that it's so man-centered. Sometimes it's centered on the preacher. You know, you can get a lot of attention if you tell cute stories, especially if they're about yourself or about your children. One of the things I determined to do when I came here 18 years ago was never tell stories about my children. I don't know if they appreciate it, but uh, they will. Uh, and uh, perhaps they already already do. Sometimes uh, today's preaching is focused upon the hearers. We, we, we talk about speaking to felt needs, and there's a, a, a certain sense in which that's proper. You, you reach people by speaking to their felt needs. But a lot of preaching never gets beyond that. It, it's psychological in nature. It's sociological in nature. It looks to the polls. It says what produces results. How do you build a big congregation? Why? You, you do it by talking about the kind of things and providing the, the sort of programs that people are most interested in regardless of what you find in the gospel. That sort of thing succeeds as the world's programs succeed. You can build a big thing just like you can build a big corporation or market hamburgers. But you see, that's quite a different thing from doing the work of God. And that's quite a different thing from the work of God's Spirit. And the Holy Spirit leads. Preaching is biblical, and it is always centered on Jesus Christ. Sometimes you see preaching can be eloquent and very moving, so an entire congregation can be swayed by the preacher's rhetoric, and yet it can be quite unsound in terms of reason and the operations of the mind. This was not the case with Peter's preaching. I'm sure that Peter was a very eloquent man, And I'm sure that on this occasion he preached with great fervor and that the people noted this and the Holy Spirit blessed the fervor and the eloquence and everything else. But when you read this, you find that he is calling the people to think in spiritual ways. He's saying, look, you know about Jesus. You know what he did. You know the miracles that took place through his ministry and by his hands. That was God's way of authenticating him. Is that not true? Why would he do miracles? How could he have done miracles if God had not been with him? And then you know how the leaders, your leaders, and how you yourself 
conspired in his crucifixion. You said, we don't want a man like this. And you saw that he was killed. And what happened? God, God raised him from the dead. We're witnesses of this. And that was proof that God accepted Christ and repudiated your repudiation. And now, says Peter, this Christ, this exalted Lord, has poured out the Holy Spirit, which you see and can witness even this day at Pentecost. You see how reasonable that is? And then Peter went the final point and drew the conclusion, and that was reasonable as well. If this Jesus is the Christ, if he's God's Son, and if you have killed him, then you have killed your Messiah. And the only thing that you should do, you know you should do it, is repent of that great sin and be baptized, thereby identifying yourself in faith with Jesus Christ. That was powerful because we're told as we come to the end of the sermon that they were cut to their heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? I long for a day when we see that in the church of Jesus Christ, in our city, in our country, when the preaching is so biblical, so Christ-centered, so fearless, and so sound and reasonable, and so blessed by the Holy Spirit in all those respects, that men and women cry out, Oh, brothers, sisters, what must we do? And when the answer is given, repent and be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ so that your sins may be forgiven. They do repent and they believe in Jesus and are added to the company of the church. God blesses that kind of preaching. On that day, 3,000 were added to the number. May we have more preaching like that. May God bless such preaching today. Our Father, we thank you for this example of what a sound exposition of the gospel by an apostle or a preacher or any other witness should be. When we measure ourselves by that standard, we find that we fall short, and so we repent of our shortcoming. We repent also of our sin, where if it is the case, we've allowed a concentration upon external things or upon man or upon ourselves to detract from Jesus. And so, Father, do turn us in our testimony and preaching in the way that we should go. And grant that we may have in our day a generation of biblical, Christ-centered, fearless, and sound witnesses who, as they speak for Jesus, are so blessed and filled by your Spirit that men and women are cut to the heart and repent of their sin and trust him. We pray in anticipation of what you will do. In Jesus' name, amen. You're listening to the Bible Study Hour featuring the teaching of Dr. James Boyce. Peter's great sermon on the day of Pentecost was, in part, an interpretation of Joel's prophecy concerning the pouring out of God's Spirit on man in the latter days. 
Learn more about this intriguing subject in our free CD offer entitled Peter's Texts at Pentecost, another message from Dr. Boyce. This free CD is our gift to you. To receive it, call 1-800-488-1888, and we'll be pleased to send you a copy of Peter's Text at Pentecost. That number again is 1-800-488-1888. One of the ways you can help proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ and lead others to faith is by supporting the broadcast of Dr. Boyce's Spirit-Filled Messages with your prayers and gifts. To make a donation to this ministry, visit our website at thebiblestudyhour.org. You can also call us at 1-800-488-1888, or there's our postal address, 600 Eden Road, Lancaster, Pennsylvania, 17601. Thank you for your prayers and financial gifts. The Bible Study Hour is a broadcast ministry of the Alliance of Confessing Evangelicals, proclaiming biblical doctrine and offering reformed resources to equip and edify today's church. Connect with our online publishing, broadcast, and event platforms at thebiblestudyhour.org. I'm Mark Daniels. Thanks for tuning in. As the remarkable experiences of the day of Pentecost fade away for the first Christians, we find them not reveling in the experience of the day, but instead drilling down into the Word of God. Join Dr. James Boyce as he examines the focus of the early church and the characteristics of a spirit-filled body of believers. That's next time on The Bible Study Hour, preparing you to think and act biblically.